This is The Rational Perspective. I'm Alec Hogg. And in this episode, Chris Stane, author of the best-selling book, Lost Boys of Bird Island. During the 1980s, South African newspaper newsrooms were magnets for fascinating characters. Among those larger-than-life personalities that I worked with back then was the late Jeff Allen, a rotund, highly opinionated and ever acerbic journalist at the Rand Daily Mail, an award-winning anti-apartheid newspaper that very sadly uh, was closed down in 1985. Alan, an investigative journalist, is the unlikely starting point for an almost fantastical story about a ring of powerful paedophiles who preyed on street children and operated with impunity. This all through the late stages of the apartheid era. Their nefarious deeds have been exposed in a recently released bestseller, The Lost Boys of Bird Island, co-authored by another of my former colleagues, journalistic thoroughbred Chris Stain. I've always been a huge fan of Chris's work, having seen close up how she has made exposing the truth her only priority, regularly speaking out against the powerful on behalf of those who do not have a voice. Much has happened in the few weeks since the publication of this bestseller. Most dramatically, the suicide last month of Chris's co-author, Mark Minnie. Chris has also been the subject of a sustained attack by some of Africana Dorm's formerly powerful figures, including a scathing accusation over the weekend by an apartheid police general that she and Minnie made it all up. So we caught up last week kicking off the conversation by swapping notes about Jeff Allen, brother of Dave, a central character in the hard-hitting book. Um, well, I, I was working at The Citizen. Uh, that was my first um, or second job in, in, in journalism. And uh, Jeff uh, suggested to Paul Bell, who was news editor of the Rand Daily Mail, to recruit me because Jeff was worried that I was scooping him. Uh, so we started working together at the Rand Daily Mail. Because he was the the brother of the one of the central characters in the book. Yes, Jeff was the, the brother of Dave Allen. Dave Allen was was Wally's um, close friend, who was the first to die. It was his death on on a beach near Port Elizabeth that sparked the investigations into the story. I contacted Jeff Allen, and he then spoke to me at length about what his brother had been up to. And did he then also tell you about the connections with these very powerful people? He did. He did. Yes, he did. He he spoke quite quite openly to me about that. He was he was he was quite worried about his own safety, so he was careful how he coached things, but but he um he confirmed uh he confirmed the the links. Uh because by then um it had it had emerged that Dave Allen had told Mark Minnie, uh, the detective in the case, uh, that he was not the only one involved in in these alleged pedophilic activities, and that he was not going to go down alone. Uh, and he then named certain 
cabinet ministers. That sparked Minnie's investigation. But of course, I didn't yet know about that until after after Dave Allen's death. So you then had the inside scoop almost from uh, from Jeff, which you couldn't quote him clearly as a fellow journalist, you know, way back 30 years ago. Yes, because I, I first became um, aware of, of, of a possible link between Dave Allen and John Wiley after John, John Wiley's death. Somebody called me and told me to look at the link between the deaths of the two men. And, and, and that's when I called Jeff Allen and, and Jeff spoke to me. He was one of my, only one of my sources. Mm. But, but a hell of a source. I mean, given that it's absolutely because he was close to his brother and had apparently known about these things for a long, long time. Uh, Jeff was a great investigative journalist, and you couldn't keep secrets from from Jeff. So I, I, I was not surprised that his brother couldn't keep secrets from him. So back in 1987, while Chris was digging from the outside into the mysterious related suicides of a leading Port Elizabeth businessman, David Allen, and a National Party cabinet minister, John Wiley. Narcotics detective Mark Minnie was the cop on the case. I'd been to Port Elizabeth and I had seen everybody I, who was willing to see me at the time, including uh, my deep throat in the National Party. Uh, and I, had, I decided to, 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 to try and speak to the investigating officer. As you know, uh, in those years, uh, a reporter could, could not approach an investigating officer directly. Uh, one had to go through police spokespeople. Um, who sanitized the versions of what one was allowed to print. But I did contact him. Uh, he did agree to see me. We met briefly in, in the foyer of a hotel. I had, I had completely forgotten about that meeting because it was so useless at the time until we met again 30 years later and he reminded me of how dramatic it, it, it had been. I don't quite believe that he had, he had two snipers on me. I think that was a bit of artistic license there. But I believe he, he, he was very paranoid for his own safety at the time because two people had died under very mysterious circumstances. He was investigating really high-profile people, and this reporter comes along and drops names in his lap. He recalls saying to me, fuck off your bitch, you're going to get me killed. That was after he had confirmed to me over record what Alan had said to him. So, of course, I couldn't use any of that at the time, and I completely put it out of my mind. But that's so frustrating as a journalist, isn't it, that you've now got, you've got uh, that inside information from the investigative officer. You've got the brother of, of one of the key characters, so you know the story, but to, to corroborate it or to prove it. Well, and I had a, I had a, 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 a source high up in the National Party who told me that the cabinet knew, and 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 that source had somebody on the island, um, somebody who worked there, who stayed there, and was uh, uh, was essentially an eyewitness to certain certain events. So I felt really strongly about the story. I I could not believe why that that was not good enough. Uh, because because we couldn't name the the deep throat, because we couldn't um, uh, uh, reveal that we had spo- that we had confirmation from the investigating officer, um, it it made it made it a very challenging story to try and get into print. I uh, I stayed on the story for about six weeks, but eventually I had to move on uh, when I was at the Cape Times because I, I often had to write the the most important three stories of a day, so I couldn't stay on the story. Uh, when I 
devoted a chapter to that in my book, in Publishing Be Damned, and I think it was in 2006, I did make uh, further inquiries from people who were not my contacts at the time, but whom I'd subsequently met and who knew things. For instance, um, you know, security branch policemen who would never have spoken to me at the time. So I, I got additional corroboration, and, and it made me feel once again very, very, very strongly uh, about uh, about the story. Um, and then when uh, Mark came forward and with his story, and Toffelbach decided to publish his book, and they contacted me, I, I started making inquiries again. So on and off over the years, I, I have I've tried to to work on the story. As I told somebody this morning, I'm trying to finish writing a story that I started 31 years ago. What started as a small contribution to Minnie's book for publishers Tafelberg subsequently developed into full-blown collaboration by the two of them. He didn't even know that I had written a chapter on it in a book. Uh, uh, Somebody close to him, uh, I think uh, his, uh, his ex, one of his exes, found my book, send him the chapter. He sent it to Tafelberg. This is how, this is how I think it, it went down. Tafelberg contacted me and asked me if I would write the forward to Mark's book, which I agreed to do. I was really happy that he had decided to come forward. Um, and, and while we were working on the book, Tafelberg decided to, to, to extend my brief to, to writing my own narrative that could be interwoven with Mark's narrative. So, that it would be two parallel investigations done by people who could not cooperate and yet came to the same conclusion. That's how the book came about. The Lost Boys of Bird Island book hit the South African market hard, evoking strong emotions. Since its publication, social media has been buzzing non-stop and the Afrikaans Sunday newspaper report has devoted hundreds of column centimeters to both sides, much of the debate being focused on the naming of two apartheid cabinet ministers in the book, particularly the once all-powerful former Minister of Defense, Magnus Malan, a man lampooned by cartoonists during his lifetime because of his protruding ears. Also, the man referred to by the street kids in the book as Ura, or ears. I think the people who are refusing to believe this you know, are people who, who who can't believe that the poster boy of apartheid was capable of something like that. I think it, people are not necessarily defending an, an individual. I think they are defending an ideology, a government. Uh, uh, they're defending Afrikaners because this is damaging to to the reputation of Afrikaners. It's damaging to the reputation of the previous government, as it as it were. That's how I feel. I, I find it odd that they're not defending Wiley. Why are they not defending Wiley? Why would they believe it of Wiley, but not of Milan? Is it because Wiley uh, was, was English-speaking, not a member of the Bruderbond? So he's capable, they, they, they're happy to believe that he was capable of such heinous deeds, but not Milan. And the third cabinet minister you haven't named uh, for legal no. reasons, I presume? Yes. So he's still alive? We, we 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 haven't named named him, but there seems to have been some confusion amongst ex ministers as to who <laughs> who it could be, who was going to say something, who was not going to say something. Um, no, we haven't named him at all. We haven't named him, and I'm not planning to name him. Obviously, um, um, you know, now that the Human Rights Foundation is investigating, 
um, doing an independent investigation. Um, uh, I'm really hoping that one day we could move, we could we could move to the point of of prosecution. They 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 uh, offered to become involved even before Mark's death. Um, unfortunately, it was too late for Mark. That was all Mark ever wanted was it was an independent, thorough investigation into the allegations, and he's not alive to see that. But um, the indep- yes, the, the Human Rights Foundation is busy w- with an independent investigation. Um, ideally, we would like to get to the point where there could be prosecution. However, we are dealing with a situation where where, where victims were, were vulnerable street children, um, many of whom are no longer alive. Children who then were fed drugs and alcohol and, and ended up uh, on the street or in prison. They are not queuing up in exclusive books with a platinum credit card to buy the book. So... Um, to, for those victims to come forward, is, uh, it, it's, it's not easy because many of them won't even know that the book has been written. There are others who are fragile, really fragile and damaged people and, and could, who, who can't be put through, put through this process. It's a challenge uh, to, you know, to find victims or, or to, to, to bring forward victims who are strong enough to go through the process that would be required. Mark Minnies, you mentioned that he has passed on. There's all kinds of confusion about how he died. He, I do believe that he, that he shot himself, physically shot himself. Uh, but in my mind, it was remote murder. Um, I believe that, that he was driven to kill himself. Uh, that the morning of his death, he was on deadline, literally. He was, he was in a big hurry to get it done. Um, and, um, you know, Alec, uh, well, I, I know I've been told how these things work. It's not that difficult to drive somebody to suicide. Um, it would have been a simple phone call from a disposable telephone. Mark, um, you have until Monday morning, 10 o'clock, you know what to do. And, and if you don't, the following will happen. So uh, he would have done anything to protect certain people. He, he wouldn't have done it because he feared for his own life. Although there were people in his, uh, uh, who, 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 there were people who were looking for him. Did mm. you talk mm. about this before the book was published that there there would be a threat to your lives? You know, we I don't think it was something we worried we really worried about. Um, as a as a as a journalist or investigative journalist, that has been part of my. Um, work it's not something i've ever taken that seriously um i don't mark it was part of mark's work too as a sun-up officer i don't think either of us really worried about that it was we were just we were just excited that 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 the truth was finally going to be put out there um we didn't even think about anything like that Mm. well i i you know i don't think we did did he have any idea going into the writing or at the time of the publication of the book that it it was going to be something that would take his life we know he was he was damaged himself at a at a young age yes. his his obsession for this what's your sense of his state of mind as it were i no i i mark had been through so much in his life i i don't think i don't i think suicide was the last thing on his mind i don't believe that that he could have his death was part of a script for him Absolutely not. He'd written a second book, not on Bird Island. He'd written a third book. He was working on a third book. Uh, 
yeah, he, uh, he was he was looking forward to being a writer. He was hoping that there would be some cold case unit on which he could work and and contribute to to towards investigating these kinds of cold cases, and and that he could make you know could help bring justice for people like like himself, who who were raped as children. He had a, he had a lot to live for. Um, so and he was a very good father. He would not have. Uh, he would have not just left his children. He was anti-suicide because he because of what it would do to to, to children. So um, no, um, I was in con- I was in regular contact with him. I I don't I think if he had felt suicidal, he would have told me. Uh, if it was a normal can't take this anymore suicide, he would have told me. But the reason he didn't tell me was because he knew I would have tried to stop him, and he could not afford to have been stopped, and he had his own reasons for that. Did he leave any uh, any notes, any clues on to on why he did this? He left. He just he left a note. He left two notes that were very similar. Basically, both said the same thing that he had been haunted for thirty one years by the pitiful cries of the lost boys of Bird Island. And um, yeah, and he he urged me to keep going. He urged me not to give up. Um, he said, "You so." You're almost home. Um, no government officials preventing you from investigating this time round. He he knew I would keep going, and and he just couldn't he couldn't um, he couldn't finish the job with me. Okay. I am I am keeping going. Uh, we're processing new leads every day. Uh, I'm, I'm uh, I've decided to cooperate with the um, Human Rights Foundation to make their job easier. Um, whatever I get, I pass I pass on to them. Um, Yes, I am keeping going. One way or another, I'm not. I, 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 I you know, I'm, I'm keeping going. I can't give up now. So what, I really can't. What motivates you? What motivated me uh, from the start? Justice for voiceless people. These these kids would never have been believed by anybody, even if it were just a local teacher would rape them. They would not have been believed. These were these were utterly voiceless people. Uh, no one would have believed them. No one would have spoken up for them. Uh, so I think this book is not just about them. It's about all those children who have endured something like that at the hands of powerful people and who, and who, 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 who have lived with blame and shame their whole lives. Hopefully this will give people the courage to speak up uh, in the hope that they will be believed by someone. And have you been to Bird Island itself, where all of this happened? No, I I haven't been because it, it was a restricted area at the time. Many people say, "Why didn't you go there?" Well, I couldn't have gone there unless I dropped in, you know, got parachuted in illegally, um, because it was controlled by the government. The islands were controlled by the government. Um, it one couldn't just visit it. So, hence, it would be a very uh, <laughs> useful place if you were high up in government and wanted to do nefarious deeds. Yes, you, you could have done whatever you felt like in utter se- in complete secrecy. And the people on the island were, were, were lowly, lowly workers, um, who would have not, would have known better than, than to say anything. Or, and you would not obviously have, have, have been, uh, necessarily privy to anything except those who used binoculars and leopard crawl to go and see what was going on. And that did happen. How, how, how big was this ring? It looks like um, it was it was much bigger, and some of those people appeared to be around still. and And it also uh, appears from the, from information we've been getting in that the ring that that 
operated in other places as well, not all members of it, but some members of it, like, places like Grahamstown and other places. So it's, uh, it's, and in Cape Town. So it's, it's, it's far bigger than, than, we, than we thought. I think the, the book is literally one of the tip of the iceberg type books. This was something people were prepared to kill for. I don't think of my own safety. I definitely do not live in fear. Uh, I never have uh, as a journalist. Otherwise, it's not the kind of job I would have done. Even if I lived in fear, all I have to do is think of the children and my safety will become completely irrelevant. So what are you hoping is is going to happen with all of this? If you could look back in, say, two or three years' time, uh, what would your ideal um, consequence be of, of the book? Well, I mean, the, the, the holy grail would be a, 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 a prosecution. Um, uh, but if, if, we, if we don't get to that point, certainly uh, I would like to see more people uh, uh, publicly held accountable uh, for knowing and doing nothing to stop it. Because the silence of people who have known for 31 years that silence is claiming victims. It's claimed Mark's life, uh, his children, his family. They are victims too. The families of the perpetrators. These are victims who, whom we didn't have to have if people had not kept silent, if people did not take part in a cover-up. Even now, people who definitely had to have known are pretending uh, they know nothing about it because they are afraid of being held accountable. They don't want to be seen as culpable, but they are. And, and and the book itself has it been well received? Are you uh, are, are the publishers uh, seeing it on the bestseller list? I believe so. I believe it is selling well, and and from that point of view, I'm just grateful that it that it's raising awareness uh, that that it is possible to be believed. Speak out. Come forward. Come and tell your story. There are people who are going to believe you. You don't have to suffer in silence and and pass on this un. Believable pain from generation to generation. Chris Dane left newspapers some years back. She now lives in the usually quiet Cape Seaside resort of Hermanus, where she co owns a second hand bookstore. This has been The Rational Perspective. Until the next time, cheerio.